Thanks very much, mate. Well, as I mentioned before, happy Father's Day. It is a, a great day, Father's Day, and uh, uh, on, a, on a day like this, it causes some uh, nature of reflection, doesn't it? A reflection on fathers, and if you are a father, on, on, uh, on what you are like yourself. In what ways are you like your dad? In what ways is it like father, like son? Now, for me, I hope that is the case in many different ways. My dad's generous and kind, very supportive, loves sport. I'd love to be like that. And I see those good things and I want to be uh, like uh, dad in those good things. But on the other end of the scale, from a different point of, uh, of generational thought, when I am uh, thinking of myself as a father, I look at my own kids and I hope that they're nothing like me. I hope that they're nothing like me. I hope that all of the bad habits that I've got, I don't pass on to them. That seems to be the case. All of the things I seem to say to my kids, don't do that, are the things that I turn around and do myself. I hope I don't pass on too many of my bad traits to them. I wonder, are you like your dad or are you passing on bad traits to another generation as well? As we get into this passage by God's kindness and timing this morning, we have here a passage of the, of the uh, man named Gideon, as we saw last week, or referred to in this passage, as GB made really clear, as Jerubbabel here. And here we see his son follow in his bad footsteps. It's not good news. Today we will see how the oppression of God's people that we've seen in the book of Judges now comes from within inside God's people. And we'll see how God ultimately uses evil to bring an end to evil, which is good news for us all. That's what's ahead of us this morning. You need your Bible open in front of you. Uh, We read the first 21 verses, but we're going to have a look at the whole chapter of Judges chapter 9 this morning. Uh, Don't forget there's a question time a little later on using slido.com and the hashtag HB for Helensburg, SP for Stanwell Park, and you can ask a question there. Let me pray and we'll look at chapter 9 of the book of Judges together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking to us. And that you are our Heavenly Father. We ask, please, that you would help us to see uh, what uh, your, your word is saying to us this morning so we might understand you better, ourselves better, and how we might follow you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I want to, uh, I want to start today uh, by doing, having a little bit of a quiz here. And uh, you'll see a couple of things come up on the screen. I want you to identify uh, these particular logos for me. Anyone know this one? Good, that's nice and easy. Aldi, isn't it? This one? Okay, you're pretty, you're pretty well advertised, all you people. Good. The next one, guess what it is? I had to know that. Yeah, well done. Excellent. What about this one? Okay, very good. It is Porsche, yes. It's fast car. What about this one? What is it, Paul? It's Bosch. Very good. Paul, you've had a look at a few too many dishwashers in your time, Paul Lucas. Hey? He's on dishwasher today. Do you have one of these at home? You do as well. Very good. Very, very perceptive. What about the last one? Okay, we know these well, don't we? Here, are, here they are, the six different logos. Now, there's actually something in common between all six of these. Does anyone know what that is? Might be a bit harder. They're, they're all squares, that's true, except for the ones that are circles. But... Uh, uh, They're German? No, that's not what holds them in common. Anything else? Any other guesses? 
tell you what they are. These, yes, Ian. Oh, that's true. They don't spell out exactly who they are. That's true. Each of these particular companies are still family-owned. You might be uh, surprised to know they're still family-owned uh, and family-run in various different ways. And of course, uh, family businesses are not uncommon to us today as well, is it? It's it's very common. In fact, even in our own church, there are people who follow in their family's footsteps with their. Uh, the shop that they own or the electrical business or the plumbing supplies, whatever else it might be, uh, we know how these family operations run, passed on from one generation to another. But one thing that does not happen in our country, and that is good news, is that power is not passed on from one uh, generation to another. In other words, just recently when there was an election in our country, the person that was elected was not elected because they had the surname Morrison. Or the next person will not be elected because they have the surname Albanese. And so it goes on. We don't elect people on the basis of their family, but we elect people on their ability. And that's good news for us. Because we don't want tyrants running our country. We don't want people following in the footsteps of their family and taking over to rule on behalf of their family, the nation of Australia or any other nation for that matter. But in the time of Judges, we saw that this was the case. We've been looking through the book of Judges and we find ourselves in chapter 9 and we remember the cycle that has happened right throughout. You'll see it on the screen. The cycle starts with the people sinning. And then God is angered and delivers them over to their enemies and the people cry out to God. And it's God, notice, God who raises up a judge and then there is a time of peace. God raises up the judge. But here in this passage, as we'll see this morning, God does not raise up a judge. And in this way, Abimelech is in the footsteps of his father. Last week, as uh, Graham mentioned, we saw that Gideon finished the, uh, the section in chapter 8 acting like a king. He thought he was the ruler. He thought he was in charge. Indeed, he calls his son, my father is king. That's what the name Abimelech means. And so we should not be surprised that when we get to chapter 9, here is Abimelech trying to take power for himself. That's what we see in the first six verses of chapter 9. He's grasping for power and it's a brutal scene. We notice in the first two verses that Abimelech goes to his mother. His mother was Gideon's concubine and she's now living in the town of Shechem. And Abimelech goes to her and her family and says, listen, what would be better? Would it be better for the other 70 sons of Gideon? That's a lot, by the way, isn't it? 70 sons. Would it be better for the 70 sons of Gideon to rule over the nation... Or would it be better that I do it? Exactly. In our day and age, we look at that and we say, well, that's ridiculous. Or is it? I mean, think of the committees with 70 people. (laughs) Nothing much gets done when you've got lots of committees of lots of... That's what makes Anglicanism so great. We've got lots of committees. It makes the power slow. But it also makes the power uh, not easily corrupted. So you win some and you lose some. But with Abimelech as the one supreme leader over all God's people, guess what had happened? Things had get done. And so it makes an easy choice. They say, yep, you're one of us, we'll choose you. 
We'll choose you. You're going to be the ruler. You're going to be the leader over us, Abimelech. And so they give him 70 pieces of silver, which ironically is taken from the house of the idol Baal. And with these 70 pieces of silver, he buys what's described as worthless men, reckless fellows, who kill the 70 brothers, the 70 sons of Gideon. All in the same place at the same time. It's a brutal, brutal scene. And so Abimelech is the leader. He's the ruler. But notice what has not happened here. God has not raised him up. God has not raised him up to be the leader. He has raised himself up to be the leader. Now what might not be immediately obvious to us as we read this passage of Scripture is where all of this takes place. This takes place in the town of Shechem, a very significant Old Testament venue. Now, for us, we look at significant Old Testament venues and we say, oh, maybe Jerusalem or maybe just as you come into the New Testament, Bethlehem becomes really important. But in the early pages of the Old Testament, particularly before we get to the building of the temple, the most important place was Shechem. Shechem was the place where God appeared to Abraham just moments after he received the land offspring blessing, the lob promises in Genesis 12, one of the two most significant passages of the Old Testament. Shechem is the place where the covenant is renewed between God and his people in Joshua chapter 8 when they come into the promised land. Shechem is the place where Joshua would deliver his final speech to the people of God calling on them to serve God and him alone in Joshua chapter 24. And Shechem is the place where Joshua, the leader of God's people at that time and throughout his book, is buried. Where where Abimelech takes leadership on is at the most significant Old Testament place to this point, but it is a massive act of treason. See, as I mentioned before, we're often enamoured with strong leadership, aren't we? We like strong leadership to a certain degree. Because as I mentioned, strong leadership doesn't do things slowly. It does things quickly. It gets stuff done. And here we have a man, Abimelech, grasping for power. But he's grasping against what God is doing amongst his people. You might remember that in the book of Deuteronomy, God warned his people what life might be like with a king. The king might oppress his people. And here we see a a pseudo king, someone who would be king, who's put himself in the position of king. And here he will oppress his people, beginning with the 70 deaths on the rock at Shechem. Well, thankfully we're told one of the 70 brothers got away. The youngest brother, Jotham, he was able to hide somehow and he got away, got away to safety. And what's more, he doesn't just get away to safety, but in verses 7 to 21, he's able to stand up in a public place in in great safety and declare the parable of the bramble. Now, speaking of, of Father's Day, 
Uh, I grew up opposite the, the train line at Engadine, as I've mentioned uh, sometimes before, and it never used to be fenced off, or it did, but just a small barbed wire fence, nice and easy to jump over. And a Sunday afternoon, it'd be a nice afternoon to go and walk around the tracks, down on the, on the railway tracks and just up and down the tracks, and uh, we'd have a great time down there, put coins on the track, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and uh, one of the dangers, though, was that you jumped over the fence at the wrong spot. If you jumped over the fence at the wrong spot, you'd dive headfirst into a whole bunch of blackberry bushes. Maybe you've done it before. You jump in a whole bunch of blackberry bushes. Now, blackberry bushes are fantastic when they've got fruit on them and it's delicious and you can bring it home and eat it. But the rest of the time, it's horrible. Even if you're wearing nice denim, sh- denim uh, pants, those spikes, those thorns on the blackberries will rip through you and rip you to shreds. All too many times on a Sunday afternoon, we'd go walking over there and come back with scratches all up and down our legs because of the, the bramble. This is, this is what uh, type of bush Jotham refers to in his parable, the parable of the bramble. See, in verses 7 to 21, he tells this story. He says to the people, who would you make reign over you? And he tells the story of, of various trees. Will the olive tree be made to reign over you? Will the fig tree be made to reign over you? What about the vine? And he says, none of these will be chosen to reign over you, but you will choose the bramble. Obviously referring to Abimelech, the man who is a bramble ruling over them. And this man, Jotham, knows the significance of what's going on. That Abimelech would make himself the leader in a place like Shechem is horrendous to the people of God. Look at verse 16 of chapter 9. He says this, Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and his house, as you have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you've risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders, and let fire come out from the leaders and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled." You might have noticed there in verse 16 and then again in verse 19, he uses this phrase, in good faith and integrity. Jotham knows his Bible. He understands that this is a very significant phrase that was delivered in this very same place many years ago by Joshua. Look at what Joshua said, Joshua 24 verse 14, it's on the screen. This is what Joshua said at the end of his speech. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity or integrity And in faithfulness, in faith, put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And so Jotham is saying, if you, out of a fear of God, have put this man Abimelech as the king over you, so be it. But he knows they haven't. He knows it's not about putting God at the centre. He knows it's not about having God as their ultimate king. They want this man Abimelech to rule over them and he will be like a bramble to them and he says in verse 19 if you have not done so with faith and integrity 
Know this, Abimelech will bring judgment on you and you will bring judgment on him. And this is what we see in the rest of the passage. Though Abimelech has some success and uh, is quite a tyrant over the people, eventually he is brought down. Verses 22 to the end of this chapter make this clear. We see at the beginning uh, from, uh, in verse 26, there's a fellow named Ga- Agal. He moves into the area uh, and he goes to what might be described as a drinking party at the Temple of Baal. Now, he is a newcomer to town, uh, and during this drinking party, Gaal starts to say, who is this Abimelech guy anyway? And perhaps under the influence of too much drink and letting his words speak more than his brain would allow him to do, he says in verse 28 and 29 these words. Look at what he says there. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, who is Abimelech? And who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal? And is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I'd remove Abimelech and I'd say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. Sounds like Gaal's had a, a few too many uh, courage pills at the pub down with the Baal worshippers. And he's saying things that, well, his body can't match. Zebul, this man overhears this threat and goes and tells Abimelech who sets up an ambush against him and the next morning most likely with some sort of heavy hangover this Gaal man is told in verse 35 what's that coming from the hills look at verse 35 Gaal the son of Ebed went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city and Abimelech uh, uh, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose up from the ambush And when Gaal saw the people, he said to Zebul, look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebul said, no, you mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. Gaal spoke again and said, look, people are coming down from the centre of the land and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Well, then everything becomes clear and the kicker is in verse 38. Look at what Zebul says. Then Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now? I think, I think the translation should, should say champ in there as well. Where is your mouth now, champ, you who said, Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people you despise? Go out now and fight with them. He gets caught out in his language that he'd had the night before up at the uh, Baal-worshipping pub. And as a result, this man, Gaal, dies at the hand of Abimelech. And Abimelech doesn't stop there. He divides then his people, his men, into three companies, perhaps to look exactly like his dad, Gideon. And in an out-of-control way, he takes over the city of Shechem, destroys it, and raises the city and sows it with salt, verse 45 tells us. And just because that wasn't quite enough, with victory and the taste of victory in his mouth, he moves on to the next city. And look at what happens in verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. And there was a strong tower within the city. And like in Shechem before it, all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in and went to the roof of the tower. This is exactly what happened in the city of Shechem that he's previously destroyed. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman 
threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young men, his armor bearer, and said to him, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And, he, and his young man thrust him through and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Here, Abimelech comes to his grisly end. He couldn't handle his death certificate saying he was killed by a woman. And so he was thrust through by his young armour bearer. But the Bible writers know the truth and they tell us the story for us to read many thousands of years later. Here is the story of Abimelech. It's a grisly old story. A man grasping for power and lots of death and chaos coming as a result. But what can we learn from a passage such as this? What does a passage like this mean for us in, uh, in Australia, a long way away, in a lot different culture, in, in 2000, uh, th- three or three or 4,000 years later after these events? Well, a couple of things as we go through. You might like to jot a couple of things down here. First of all, God's silence does not mean God's absence. You might have noticed throughout this passage of chapter 9, the name of God, and particularly the personal name of Yahweh, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is not mentioned in this chapter at all. Indeed, when the name of God even is referred to, it's using the non-personal word for the name of God. Now, this is not a coincidence in this chapter. After all, the nation of Israel, its leaders and its people, had forgotten about God. No longer was God their leader. No longer was God their king. And yet it would be wrong to suggest that the absence of God in the lives of the people meant there was an absence of God in the world. Look again at this uh, judgment on Abimelech and verse 23 in particular. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech and so it goes on. We see God mentioned once again, again, not in the personal name, just with the word God in verses 56 and 57. Now we must ask, how could it possibly be that God could be at work through an evil spirit? Well, it's that God would use this evil spirit for his own purposes. God is the one who is still at work in the background, behind the scenes, when his people have ignored him. God would use this evil to undermine his own people, to undermine those who had gone astray. See, often for us, we look at our own lives and we think uh, God is silent and we assume that God is absent in our lives. But often when we experience the silence of God, that has more to say about ourselves than it does about God himself. God is not absent, even when he appears to be silent. More often than not, it's a result of us not listening to the, to the talking that God is doing. First of all, silence does not mean the absence of God. Secondly, reject God and reap chaos. As I mentioned, the, the name of God is hardly mentioned in this passage and this is often used in the Bible as a technique to show how God has been rejected by the people 
uh, that, uh, that he has called to himself. Think of the early chapters of the book of Exodus. As you read the early chapters of the book of Exodus, as the people are in Egypt, the name of God is not mentioned at all. This is to tell us that the people of God had forgotten him completely. Contrast that with this passage, where God's name is not mentioned at all, but on the other hand, the name Baal comes up over and over and over again. The nation is off the rails. Where they reject God, they don't move into some sort of atheism, but they replace God with gods of other kinds. Of course, this is the case in the world around us as well. Where we reject God both as a nation and as individuals, we will not go to a vacuum with no God, but we will fill it with other things. The gods of material benefits, the gods of relationships, the gods of meaning and purpose found outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage teaches us that where the the absence of the true and living God is, there is chaos. And so we must be careful in our own lives not to reject God out of our lives and reap chaos like the people of Israel did here. Thirdly, this passage has some lessons on leadership for us. Often in our world and in the time of Abimelech, leaders can assert themselves, can't they, and choose themselves to be leaders. And even when we choose leaders, we often are looking for those who are the most visible, the most self-assured, the most impressive and the strongest leaders. This is who Abimelech clearly was. But in the Bible, leadership looks a whole lot different. Leadership looks like service. Leadership looks like taking the lead by serving others. And we see all around us in the 21st century, Abimelechs everywhere, don't we? Abimelechs are everywhere. Self-made leaders putting themselves in positions. And ultimately, it's a dangerous place to be. Leadership in the people of God is never a thing that is assumed It's not a thing that runs in the family. Leadership in amongst God's people and in God's world is is about character and then it's about convictions and then it's about the competency you have and then it's about the capacity you have but the world turns those things on its head. How much can you do? Are you good at your job? And then we'll worry about your character. But in God's people, it's the other way around. uh, Fourthly, the oppression here comes from within God's people. For the first time in the book of Judges, the oppression is not from the nations around, but from the people of God themselves. Abimelech is the one who comes and oppresses his own people. And this reminds us of a theme that we find right throughout the New Testament that is all too common, and that is that false teaching and poor leadership often comes in the New Testament from within the church of God. Now, in our modern world, we have tried to get around this problem by removing the idea of leadership generally, by flattening out leadership structures totally and having no leadership in uh, in the world or in the church. The answer is not to do this, but to stand in the truth for us all to contend for the faith once for all given to the saints, as the book of Jude says. 
See, this oppression that comes from within is a danger that is always a a present danger for us as the people of God. And yet we must remember that holding on to God, keeping Him at the centre of our lives is always the way to counteract this problem. Fifthly, judgment is real. This passage makes it very clear. God brings about His judgment on the evil in the nation of Israel. Now, this, for the people walking along on the ground in Israel, would have seemed to have gone for a longer period of time than they would have liked. Look again at verse 22 of this passage. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Now, it's only three years, but it's a long three years. Think of where you were three years ago. We had no idea what virus thing this was. That was three years ago. It's a long three years. Imagine oppressive leadership, much worse than any virus thing going around, for three whole years. And yet, God allowed it to happen for three years. Is God really bringing about his judgment in this world, dealing with sin as he should? In our own lives, we often ask this question, don't we? We say if there really is sin in the world and there really is God, then he ought to deal with this sin problem and bring judgment to those who really deserve it. And yet a passage like this reminds us that God is still at work. His judgment is still real and sin will not be unpunished. Verses 56 and 57 remind us that God is in providential control. Look at verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Though he ruled for three years, God was still working his purposes to bring about judgment on Abimelech and the evil leaders of Shechem that had put him in that position in the first place. And though it takes longer than we might have liked, it is all in the perfect plan and providential control of God to bring about his judgment at just the right time. Judgment is real. Evil will be dealt with. Sin will not be left unpunished. Sixthly, this passage reminds us that the opponents of God will be humiliated. Abimelech is killed by a woman. We hear it in his own voice. It's a horrible thing in his day to be killed by a woman, someone who would not fight in the army, someone who would not be trained. And he tries to change history. But the nameless, faceless woman goes down as a hero used by God in the mould of Jael, who we saw in chapters 4 and 5. And it reminds us of what we saw earlier in this series in Psalm 2, that though the opponents may put themselves up against God, God laughs in the heavens against the opponents and shows that they will never win. Even if they appear to have some victory in this world, the opponents of God will never win. Know this, the opponents of God, sin and death and the devil, will never have the ultimate hold in your life. They will never win. Because God laughs at his enemies. Which brings us to our final point this morning, that God uses evil to destroy evil. It's amazing how God does it in this this passage, isn't it? 
Abimelech, he is an evil man. The leaders of Shechem for putting him there in the first place are evil people. And yet God uses both of them to destroy each other in the end. We read in verse 23 that this was, part, uh, this was in part the work of God, sending an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And while God is not the author of evil, he uses it for his purposes. And this is great news for us because this story reminds us of the cross of Christ. For though the cross of Christ was planned out by God, the evil that put Jesus on the cross was true and real evil. True and real evil. There's no other way about it. The human beings of that day committed divine treason in putting the Son of God on the cross in the act of the most heinous evil we've ever seen in this planet. And yet, under the superintending hand of God, the evil of the cross is used to destroy evil itself. The evil of the cross is used to destroy sin. The evil of the cross is used to destroy death. The evil of the cross is used to, to destroy the devil, the evil one. And what we see here in Judges chapter 9 is that God uses the evil of Abimelech and Shechem to bring judgment on one another and to get rid of evil from the people of God. This might seem odd to us that God would use such things in the world. But we can know this, nothing is outside of the plan of God and he uses evil to destroy evil and he does so for our good, ultimately. And so here is Abimelech. Abimelech, the man who thought that power was something he could take by himself. He thought that he could be a self-appointed leader leading to chaos in a nation with no God. And for us, we're reminded that where God seems to be silent, there he is still present, working to bring about good for his people, using evil to destroy evil. And so we must be his people, his children, his family, holding him at the centre of our lives so that we might not turn into chaos but that we might remember the God who has brought us out of our own slavery and into a relationship with him. I'm going to ask if you've got a question or two about this passage. It's a challenging one again, and uh, we're going to jump aboard now and ask one or two of those.
Okay, it's a couple of uh, couple of questions there so far. Please keep them coming in if you've got one. Happy to answer them. Uh, it's uh, two here from Rod so far. Thanks for asking them, Rod. So uh, verse 3 of chapter 9, how is Abimelech more our brother compared to his brothers? Um, uh, well, because he was... Uh, uh, not of the not of the proper family. So come back with me to chapter eight, verse thirty. Uh, now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. So this is all. Uh, I mean, that's not good in terms of having many wives. Nonetheless, they're all his wives, and so uh, these are his seventy sons. I mean, you can't imagine him having seventy sons with one, one wife. That would be an interesting. Anyway. Uh, but verse 31 says, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and, and he called his name Abimelech. So he's the outsider. He's the one born to the, the concubine, the, um, uh, the, the, the servant woman, as, as she is called, uh, in chapter 9. And so uh, Abimelech smartly goes to the mother's, his mother's relatives after, um, uh, after Gideon dies and... Uh, and and says, who do you want to be the ruler, the 70, the 70 or me? And so um, he's, he's, the, he's a stepbrother. I mean, there's a bunch of other stepbrothers in that passage, but there's uh, all of the legitimate ones and then him. So that's why uh, I think there. Yeah. Oh, a smart political play on his part. Yep. Go to the right people and get the right answers that I know I'm going to get. He was a smart character, this, this fella. Um, uh, and the second question is a, a beauty as well. Uh, is the curse of Jotham in verse 57, the judgment Jotham declared in verse 20 or something different? No, it's exactly what it is. So this is part of, um, there's so much in these, in these judges passages. I'm working hard at keeping the sermons concise, but I get really excited about them. And there's so much that I try to leave on the cutting room floor. Um, this was one of those things. So um, uh, when Jotham makes his uh, parable of the bramble in verses 7 to 21 um, uh, he says look let fire come out from Abimelech let judgment come out from him to devour the leaders let the leaders bring judgment on Abimelech and that's exactly what happens in the end but it's not as if he gets to declare it and somehow he brings it about it's God that brings it about that we must see it that way um, because otherwise verse 23 is out of place it's God that that precipitates these actions rather than Jotham declaring what God's going to do in advance it doesn't work that way um, but it's so it, it so happens that he's looked at it and said this is what it's going to be like it's going to be judgment um, and uh, and that's exactly what happens so yes verse 57 and verse 20 are are connected uh, last one why does God sort of hide for three years until the judgments of Abimelech why doesn't God use good over evil? That's an excellent question. The same reason that he doesn't do it in our lives. So we'll talk about this in, I think it's next week's sermon, on Jephthah. We'll talk about this a little bit. But if we actually asked God to deal with every single little bit of evil that happens in the world and fix it, we've got to be careful what we ask for. Um, fixing evil only happens when uh, this world is destroyed and a new world is made. That's ultimately the, the story of the Bible. Um, and so you think, if God was to intervene uh, every time we were about to sin, what would that look like? Uh, and, and so th- this, is the, this is the nature of the, the world in which we live. God does allow sin to take place in this world, um, both of a grievous kind and of a minor kind, even though in the sight of God these things are evil. So uh, these things are equal. Uh, so why doesn't God use good over evil? Well, uh, 
to, to work out his judgment takes time. Uh, and, uh, and sometimes it's that time that we're not happy with, um, but it's always in the right time. So um, uh, as uh, the book of, I think it's Romans off the top of my head says, at just the right time, is this right? Christ died for the ungodly. Is that in the book of Romans? Have I got that right? Just at, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's interesting that Jesus came at just the right time. Um, after 400 years of silence between Malachi and the book of Matthew, uh, all sorts of things going on in the people of God, all sorts of good things, but a lot of really bad things in the people of God, um, that God would wait that time. It's all in his timing at just the right time. Uh, and so we, uh, we must be careful when we question the timing of God at that level as well. It's an excellent question. Thanks for asking it. Let me pray and we'll sing our final song. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word to us. We thank you that you have done away with evil at the cross of Jesus. We thank you for that uh, remarkable encouragement uh, that uh, you would use evil for your purposes uh, to bring about the end of evil. It's an amazing reality uh, that we are so thankful for. Uh, We ask, please, that uh, you might help us uh, to humble ourselves and come before you and to take, uh, uh, take your word listen to you and allow you to be at the centre of our lives so that uh, we might not find chaos in our lives as we see here uh, and so that we would not forget you. But we ask, Heavenly Father, uh, that, uh, uh, that you would be uh, consistently ready uh, to forgive uh, as we know you are because of what Jesus has done for us, even when we mess it up. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you so much for speaking to us clearly in your word. Uh, remind us please of your presence in our lives through your word and by your spirit so that we might hold on to you day by day and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. We're going to sing our final song. So praise the name. Please stand as